Friends, we are in First Peter today. I won't tell you what he was called in our Sunday school class, but we're in First Peter and we're in chapter 3. Open your Bible with me uh, to a passage that many of you will say, oh, this is so old-fashioned, I wish we could just skip right over this. But there's a reason that it's there. Truth is old-fashioned. You live in an age where Western society is tearing itself apart by denying such basic things as truth, as biology, as gender. We're trying to destroy one another by uh, turning the world upside down, trying to remake it in our own image. Uh, But the Bible is God's measuring stick. You lay it alongside of a crooked world, and it is a straight edge. Uh, The old word for Scripture is the canon. Canon, not that you shoot with an artillery piece, but canon meant measuring stick. We measure our hearts, our lives, the world on the basis of God's true word. So I admit up front, this is old-fashioned, but this is needed in our hearts and our lives today. Each week we point to the theme of Peter that you are sojourners and exiles. As Peter begins his first letter to Christians abroad in five Roman provinces, he says, you are scattered abroad and you're suffering. You're being persecuted for being followers of Jesus. How do you write to people in that situation? Well, God gives Peter the great gift of encouragement. He writes this letter to encourage believers uh, who are living in a hostile environment as Christians have for 2,000 years around the world to varying degrees. Even with the restrictions that we have had throughout the pandemic as well as the DR had some onerous restrictions with, with curfews and so forth, much like Quebec at its worst moments during the pandemic, We have nothing to complain about compared to our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who are losing property and losing their lives for their faith in Christ. And that's been a hallmark of Christianity for 2,000 years. But Peter is written and over the ages has encouraged us And it's interesting the way he does it. It's not on the screen, but I want to set the context for this important passage that we're going to study today. Peter encourages us. He says, as a believer, you have living hope. And that's what you need in hard times. You need hope. Hope gets you through. Not wishful thinking, oh, I hope I get, uh, I don't even know what the new gaming machine is, a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. Oh, I hope. That's wishful thinking. My wife is never going to get me a PlayStation 5. I'll tell you right now. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. We're talking about blessed assurance, rock-solid assurance. You have hope that will see you through. And Peter says it's a living hope because your hope is in a living Savior. It's not in a uh, religion. It's not in religious people. It's in Jesus, the Son of God, who sits at His Father's right hand today interceding on your behalf. You have a living hope. And he encourages us throughout this book in three ways. The first chapter and a half, he reminds us of our past, that you as a follower of Jesus have put your faith in him and you are now saved from your sin and kept for eternal life with Jesus. He reminds us of our great salvation. That's your past. And in this central portion of the book that we're in today, he talks to you about your present. You are in this world for a reason. You are on literally a mission from God. 
missional living. We'll talk about that a little bit later, recognizing that the great commission is your mission with Jesus in this world. The reason you're not raptured into God's presence as soon as you uh, put your faith in him is that there's a job for us to do in this world to show God's love to the world, to share his saving word, the good news of the gospel with the world. And Peter talks about how to do that in a hostile setting, scattered, pilgrims, exiles, suffering, how we go about it. He talks about it, and we'll see that a little bit later, that he says we have a responsibility to live in such a way that we are examples of the faith. You are, and your life is your great tool for evangelism. You are to be an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's your present, and that's what our passage refers to today. And finally, that goes from 2.12 to chapter 4, verse 6. And from chapter 4, verse 7 to the end of the letter, Peter talks about your future, our blessed hope, where our faith becomes sight and Jesus returns to this hurting world and once and for all sets everything right. The return of Christ. I hope you're excited. After Easter, we'll be getting to the return of Christ. And Second Peter speaks a lot on those issues as well. Past, present, future. That's what we're encouraged to do. But as I said, we are now in the present section talking about our lives showing the world Jesus. Our mission of evangelism. Not knocking on doors and going through the four spiritual laws, but the very life you live at work, at home, at school communicates Jesus in a powerful way. Jesus himself said of himself in John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die that he would be lifted up on a cross. But it also clearly has a secondary meaning. The meaning that when you live a life that lifts up Jesus, that shows Jesus to those around them so they don't see you and they don't hear your words, they're hearing from God. When you lift Jesus up, he will draw all people to himself. God's spirit will convict of sin and draw them to himself. You're... An illustration. Your life is God's great sermon illustration. The good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners. He died on the cross for them. And that when we accept Christ as our Savior, He gives us a new heart. He indwells us with His Spirit. He makes life joyful and abundant. And you're the illustration of that. That's powerful. But that's what we've been talking about. The different spheres of life that we seek to lift Jesus up. In fact, I've called this morning's message, If I Be Lifted Up. You know I'm old when I quote King James Version in my sermon titles, because in the King James, that's how that's translated, If I Be Lifted Up. It's like contingent. Maybe I will be lifted up, maybe I won't. A better translation is the one I read this morning, When I Am Lifted Up, because that's literally what the Greek is saying. Jesus says, When I Am Lifted Up, I will draw all people to myself, either on the cross 
are through your life. We need to lift Jesus up. Well, I said I used that fancy buzzword that people use a lot in church circles today, missional living. And that's where we want to begin today. Missional living, what it means, it means basically you are the light of the world. Jesus' old-fashioned teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Take the light of God and shine it in your corner of the world, in your relationships, in your language, in your actions. Because you can talk a good talk. You can, you can be that, the Bible answer man. You can, you can be that person at work, that holy Joe that always has a Bible verse to fit every situation. But if your life doesn't back that up, if you're known to do business in a shady manner, or you're a bad neighbor, or you're not faithful to your spouse. We live in a small town. I've often told city people that in a small town, you live your life with your windows open. You know what's going on at your neighbor's house. You know if they're getting along. You know if they're not getting along. You know, people have a track record and a history, and we all know it, or at least they think they know it, and they'll share it with one another. Missional living is shining God's light. As we've gone through this so far, remember we began the first week? Look at this. I made a little bitty chart about missional living. Next slide will show it. How to shine your light, to be a lighthouse. Well, remember a few weeks ago, that kind of sermon that kind of stepped on our toes because none of us were happy with the way our governments have been treating us during the pandemic? But we were told that in the broadest sphere of life, you shine your light by being a model citizen. All of these, the bottom word is the key word in every area of life, submission. And we don't like that. We think it smacks of slavery, surrender. It's very negative to us. Nobody wants to submit. If you're one of those guys that likes to watch, uh, you know, pay-per-view, the people battling in the octagon, you know, submission is when they surrender. They are going to have their arm pulled out of the joint and then they tap out, I quit, you beat me. Well, nobody wants to submit. But in this context, submission, which comes from the Greek word hupotasso, it can be rightfully translated depending on the context in different ways. Generically speaking, that word means to line up behind. It's a military term. There's our leader. There's the general. He's leading us. He's out in front. We're behind him. We're walking with him. Jesus walking in the dusty roads of Galilee, Hupotasso, his disciples lined up behind him and they went with him. That's what we're called to do. Hupotasso in regards to the government we're called to be model citizens. Hupotasso should be translated willingly submit to the authority of the government. Now remember, all of these areas of life, we're told unless it contradicts God's clear teaching. Then we stand up in the face of the Sanhedrin like the Apostle Peter and say, judge for yourself whether it's right to obey you or to obey God. We can't go against what God's Word teaches. We can't go against our own consciences. But hupotasso, when it comes to that broad institutions of world government, we're told to, by and large, be model citizens. And remember, this was so important for this scattered, persecuted 
Christian group. People didn't even know that was a brand new word, Christian. Who are these guys? They're not Jews. They're not Gentiles. They're a mixture. They have this Jesus guy. I think he was Jewish. What are these people? Do you remember the slander that Peter is helping people overcome? Christians are atheists. They don't go to the temples. They don't sacrifice to the Greek and Roman gods. They're atheists. They don't burn the incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. So they are disloyal. They said we were haters of mankind. And in our secret meetings with the body and blood of Christ, cannibals, the most disgusting, reprehensible cult. That's what we were known as. How to overcome that. Let them see who you really are. In regard to authorities, you willingly submit to their authority wherever you can. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. But then Peter goes from the broad to closer to home. In fact, it was home for many of the people. Remember, a large portion of this early church, they were slaves. They were a servant underclass. They didn't have... uh, political economic freedom that many people had so peter says in that you are to be a model employee or and that's the principles we take from it or if you are an employer you be the model employer just as hupotasso in regards to government told us that we were to willingly submit here hupotasso at work in our workplace in our work lives says that we loyally serve That's not to say you don't have freedom to quit a job where you're badly treated or do something that's better for your family. In fact, when it comes to your workplace, your family and their welfare is your highest priority. Maybe you're working a job that's killing you. I have yet, as a pastor, visited somebody in the hospital in a deathbed who regretted not working more hours. Oh, pastor, back in 1973, I could have had so much overtime. No, what they regret is neglecting their relationship with their kids, forgetting about their wife. The important things come into focus then. So we have priorities. Willingly submit to the authority of the government, loyally serve. You see how Christians are developing a track record with broader society through this teaching? And today right in keeping with these earlier teachings, we come all the way home from government to the workplace to the family. And the heart, the beating heartbeat of family, the marriage relationship, husband and wife. Because in this new world of faith in the the first century, people coming to faith, they always came one at a time. One at a time. So generally, there was one spouse that was believing before the other, and Peter is writing to this exact situation. And what does hupotasso mean as we talk today about submitting to one another in the marriage relationship? Well, it has aspects of loyally serving, lining up behind. But especially as Peter writes to wives with unbelieving husbands, he says, entrust yourself to their care. That's what it means to submit. It's an act of trust. To put yourself in His hands to love you, to cherish you, and to honor you. That's a leap of faith depending on the situation. And Peter is writing to us today. 
Many times we link this passage in Peter's and First Peter three to the Apostle Paul's teaching about Christian households. That's a wrong connection. Peter's not writing to Christian households. He's writing to Christian spouses with unbelieving spouses. It makes so much sense when we see it in the proper light. And the first point, obviously, in our missional living at home is our witness to our unbelieving partners, our husbands, our wives, the people who are most precious to us in the whole world who don't yet know Jesus personally as their Savior. They may have had a brushing uh, acquaintance. They may have come from a Christian family, but it never reached their heart. They don't know Christ. We see the good in them. We love them. We chose them. And yet, the one who's most precious to us of all, Jesus Himself, we don't share Him in common with our spouse. Every church I've ever been in, we have people who have that challenge in their lives and those of us who have been blessed with a believing spouse take it for granted we don't know the challenges the heartbreak all that goes with being in a household where only one spouse is believer writing to women in this situation and you'll notice in these seven verses seven of them are written to wives one written to husbands. Why? Because as today it was in Peter's time, it was far more common to have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. Far more common. And we'll talk about why this was a particular challenge in Peter's day, why he had to go in depth into this for wives in this situation. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, in the same way as we relate hupotasso to government and to our employers, our masters, the workplace, in the same way, wives, be submissive, hupotasso, to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That's powerful and beautiful teaching. Peter is saying, wives, if your husband doesn't know Jesus, they don't believe the word. You notice how he used both of those phrases? If they don't believe the word, Jesus, the logos, the word, the word of the good news of the gospel, if they don't yet trust this and believe in it, you can witness to it by your life without words. Well, there's something pretty healthy right there for husbands and wives who don't yet have a believing spouse. We're told not to harangue them, not to preach at them. Don't tape Bible verses to their beer cans in the fridge. You know, use some, use some sense here. <laughs> you can answer questions. You can share what's on your heart and your mind, but don't beat them about the head with the Bible. Show it to them without words, with your attitudes, with your actions. 
The old proverb is an old proverb because there's a lot of truth to it, that your actions will speak far louder than your words. It's a beautiful thing. Communicating God's love to those who are most precious to us. Now, why was this so difficult and so important for Peter to write to these women? Because remember first century Roman society. The husbands, and I believe the Bible does teach structure in the family, headship and so forth, but the husbands in Roman society were more than the head of the family. They were the family. The wife, well, she was a step above property. In the Roman household, there were servants. Yeah, you own them, more or less. Sort of leased them for life. You own them. But your wife and children, yeah, you sort of own them too. It literally was a man's world. And one of the prerogatives of a Roman husband, he chose the faith of the household. He chose it. We are good old-fashioned Roman stock. We believe in the gods. We believe in Greek god Zeus, Roman god Jupiter, the father of gods. Well, we believe in Apollo. He's our guy. Or if you're in Ephesus, we believe in, in the god Artemis of Ephesus. We believe in her. She's our family god. We pray to her. The father chose that. Now imagine, ladies, it's the first century. This is the structure you've always known, you've grown up with. But God has gotten hold of your heart and life. And you now believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and the one true God of the Bible, not the Roman idols, not the mystery religions from the East, Mithraism and so forth. You are a Christ follower. How do you do this where the husband chooses the family faith? Well, you don't, you don't rebel, just as we were told that we're not rebels going to the ramparts against the government. Christianity be wiped out in a, in a heartbeat. We're told not to try to overthrow slavery uh, overnight. It took Christianity over two and a half centuries to uh, turn the Roman Empire from a gladiatorial, slave-loving, true slave society to one that not only tolerated Christianity but saw the truth of it and began to turn away from slavery. And ladies and husbands... Our spouses don't come to faith overnight. We have to live consistent, loving, Christ-like lives. Now, in this, in this world that they lived in, the gospel's revolutionary. Women are elevated completely equal with men. The principles taught, for instance, in Galatians chapter 26 to 29, Paul writes, ladies, you're a son of God. Well, the New International Version in 2011, they said, oh, that's awkward. Let's get rid of sons of God and say you're all children of God. But that Greek word, huios, in Greek, that means sons of God. We understand it means a child of God. Paul writes, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Abraham, father of faith, through faith you are God's children, adopted into his family equal heirs with christ now we may play different roles in this world 
But in God's eyes, men and women, we're children of God. We're completely equal. Now take that understanding of full equality into the Roman household. It's a recipe for disaster. And Peter is coaching these women who love their husbands how to witness to them in that context and in that setting. Trying to avoid conflict where women could be cast out in many places even killed by their husbands with no legal repercussions. Well, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, goes into more the legal side of women and men who find themselves uh, coming to faith but having an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife. Paul says, if at all possible, stick it out. Be there to witness to them if they let you, if they let you. We don't often hear sermons preached on this passage, but I think it has great application today as it did when Paul first wrote it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 12. Paul writes this. And don't, look how he begins this. Don't think this isn't biblical because Paul begins this passage. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. He always told you if he had a direct prophetic oracle from God or else it was just Paul speaking. Well, when Paul was speaking, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. It is the divinely inspired word of God still. But Paul's telling them he's not basing this on, for instance, an Old Testament passage. It's just what God has laid on his heart. Paul says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife Unbelieving wife sanctified through her husband. I'm skipping that part on the screen, but that says if you're the only Christian in your family, your family will still be blessed through you. God's blessing will overflow from your life, sanctifying, not saving. That's personal between them and God, but sanctify, blessing them through your life and testimony. The children will have the benefit of growing up in a household where faith is present. It's a wonderful thing. But then we continue down. And Paul also recognizes that sometimes they don't want to continue with you. They want to continue to follow their gods or no gods at all. And they don't want a Christian spouse. If they walk away, Paul says, as painful as it is, sometimes you let them go. Verse 15, he continues, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Sometimes they don't leave, but they try to torture and abuse a person of faith. They've broken the marriage covenant in other ways. It's just as if they have left because they've thrown their marriage out the window and they're abusing their spouse. And God has called you to have peace at home. Verse 16 How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's hard to accept, but 
We're not God. We don't do the saving. We love. We witness. The salvation is in God's hands. We pray. Oh, the folks who've prayed for unbelieving spouses throughout their lives, sometimes they see great answer to prayer and sometimes sometimes they see that passage and it speaks to them sometimes they don't accept god has called you to live in peace that's an extreme situation the apostle paul's talking about this most of the time an unbelieving spouse just says yeah you do your thing that's your thing just kind of leave me out of it go along to get along and yet we're called to do more than that We're called to be lighthouses and shine God's light even at home. Peter continues to say one way you do this is your character. He's writing to the women and he knows how to unlock men. He says you need to cultivate character through inner beauty. There's an old saying that outer beauty attracts, inner beauty captivates. He wants us as believers to be captivating people to see something in us that attracts them that we have a peace we have a joy we have a hope in hopeless times that's very attractive and it's not fleeting it's not gone overnight or tried to extend with a surgeon's knife just a few years longer as you see the sad people on television trying to maintain outward beauty peter says cultivate character inner beauty and he does that in a very seemingly old-fashioned way, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. He says, writing to wives of unbelieving husbands, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And he makes that clear. Paul does the same thing. Only hupotasso entrust yourself lovingly to the care of your own husband. You're not a doormat of every man in society. This is talking about the marriage covenant relationship. If you've ever seen the statues, the carvings, the, the, the makeup, the, the way Roman women of, of, of in the public comported themselves, sometimes it's, even to our modern eyes, it's scandalous. They had the most elaborate weaves and hair and wigs and makeup to such an extent that they couldn't bathe and they had to drench themselves in perfume as, as their natural smell. You got worse and worse. It was just a crazy time. The example of beauty when Peter wrote this was renowned as the wife of the first great Roman emperor, Augustus. His wife was Livia. She was renowned for her beauty. You still see paintings and statues of her throughout the ancient world where archaeologists discover them. The problem with Livia is though she was beautiful for a season outwardly, she was ugly on the inside. Historians tell us about how many of her own family she murdered. She loved to use poison. 
She poisoned her children. She poisoned her grandchildren. She chose who would be the next emperor through killing better qualified candidates to suit her own choices. Livia was a monster. She was a pretty monster, but she was a monster. In this world, Peter's saying women cultivate Christ-like character. Let God's light shine through your lives. Don't be Olivia. And he says, don't give in to fear because fear, you will draw back. He's saying, love, hupotasso, it's all about trust. You have to entrust yourself to another to let them care for you. Even today, many women don't want to entrust themselves to their husband. Whether it be, uh, well, we work in days, I'm not going to preach against dual income households. That's kind of the state of the world we live in today. But in the past, many women, they said, no, I'm not going to have a joint bank account. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that because I just don't trust you. Marriages fail so often. We need a prenuptial contract. We need to protect ourselves. If Christians talk that way, we're giving into fear. We trust God first. First, men and women, you entrust yourself into God's keeping and then into your spouse's care. Well, that inner beauty is what we're called to cultivate. The Apostle Paul, he, he goes right into detail. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning verse 9, he says, I also want women. It's like he's adding into Peter. Yeah, me too. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Not with braided hair, gold or pearls or expensive clothes. But how should you dress? But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Paul's not saying you can't have nice clothes. You can't look good. It's especially try to look good for one another. Men and women, be God's gift to your spouse. But your life should be clothed with your character and the actions that flow out of that. Read Proverbs 31. I learned long ago, you don't preach on that on Mother's Day because that bar is set way too high. But the reality is, oh, we love to sing the praises of the women in our lives, our wives, our mothers, women who are precious to us. And we don't often talk about their clothes or their hair. We talk about their hearts and how it moves their hands. Precious women to us. Cultivating inner beauty. That's six verses. They go by quick. Men, it's your turn. It's much more rare. But I've often seen it in my ministry. Well, not often, but I remember individuals. It's so much rarer that I remember the names and family situations of husbands, wonderful believing husbands who had unbelieving wives. It was so much more rare. It's becoming more common now as our society is growingly secular and lost and wandering. But men have to take a different approach. I call it sacrificial living. Putting her first. That's what you're called to do. To sacrifice yourself for another. If it sounds Christ-like, it's because it is. Peter, in that one verse to men, in the same situation... He says, husbands in the same way. And this tells you he's talking about hupotasso. He's talking about unbelieving spouse. 
You don't pick it up right away, but that's what that means. In the same way, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. To begin, he says, be considerate as you live. That's in the present tense and it's perfect tense. It's ongoing every day. Consider her needs. Consider where she's at in life and what you need to do so that she has the best life that she can. She is your number one mission in life, to show God's love to your wife and your family, sacrificially putting her first. That's when you stand at the altar, whether you intend to keep those promises or not, I love to hear them. I vow to love, honor, and cherish, to cherish her. Now, sometimes we get stuck where he says the weaker partner, and I try to figure out how. I say, well, you know, they have a way higher pain tolerance than me. I struggle with a broken or ingrown toenail, much less having babies. Don't get women started on baby stories. We men have to flee when they do that. Also, they have great endurance. As we've moved into outer space, we find women make better astronauts because they can focus and endure and do jobs for a longer period of time where our men's brute strength isn't quite needed as much. But in the Roman world, a man's strength, that was his virtue. A woman's beauty and heart was her virtue. Peter's talking about that reflection, and there's still reality in that as we realize that gender is not a social construct. It's not made up. That the way God designs us, even our brains are wired differently. Women live in a, in a sea of, not just emotion, a sea of relationships that we men are almost ignorant of. Talking to to, to Dini at church this week, she was talking about designing something and she mentioned the colors. I say, Dini, I'm a man. You women, you know all the colors. You have a, a Crayola box of 128 crayons. I got eight. I got eight, cra- I got eight crayons in my box. Don't ask me about colors. Women are so in tune with how people feel and the relationships. And did you see so, so they, they were down. So and so, I said. I, I, I remember I, I was hungry. You know, like uh, I, I don't pick up on a lot of things. So when he says weaker partner, he's talking not about not about just the physical brute outward aspect. I think as you look at that and reflect on Scripture, he's talking about they're the more sensitive partner. They need to be cherished and cared for. Because sometimes the waves of stress and anxiety and the hard parts of life, they will beat her up. And men, protect them. Watch over them. Be there for them. I remember years ago when we had young kids having to go on trips as a pastor. I never liked to be gone more than one or two nights It's hard on the family. It's hard on any mom at home with young kids. (laughs) But if you're a mom at home raised in a family of girls and you got three ornery boys at home and you're outnumbered, oh boy, I would come home and I would it would become so clear to me what role I played with my weaker partner. 
I was a lead control rod in the nuclear reactor of the family. <laughs> I was the emotional flatliner who would come in and see that while I was gone, that the emotional heat of the family would get higher and higher and higher and higher and dad would come home and brrr, it all calmed down, you know. Not by any great virtue, just because I'm kind of made out of lead and things bounce off me. I'm a guy, you know, and, and we need one another. Oh boy, we need the sensitivity and the heart and the compassion of our wives. And our wives need the, the stability and the, the stick-to-itiveness and hard-headedness sometimes of a man. We're equal in Christ and we're called to be partners, but we're called to care and protect one another. It's no accident that the husbands are called to sacrifice themselves that in Paul's great illustration of marriage, and I end with this, from Ephesians chapter 5, where he talks about structure in the family. He begins first by saying that hupotasso goes both ways. Up in verse 21, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do you do that? Well, as we saw in Peter, wives are to submit by entrusting themselves to the care of their husbands. Boy, it's hard on a husband when the wife doesn't trust him, doesn't let him care for her, does her own thing, doesn't respect him, has no time for him. They have to entrust themselves lovingly to be cared for. That's hard. Can't have fear when you do that. But in the other way, husbands are to submit to the needs of their family and their wives. And that's hard for men today. We're growing up in a world where men never want to grow up. <laughs> we want to be Peter Pan, always a child, always selfish, put ourselves and our fun first. When we're called, as Jesus did, to lay down our lives for our wife and for others. That's why Paul writes in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. We are to live our lives sacrificially, to be not only a leader, as a wife entrusts herself to our leadership, but to put the needs of our wives and our children before ourselves to submit ourselves to caring for them. It's old-fashioned, friends, but we need to hear it. This is a way for joy and strength. And for those of us who have the, our dearest loved ones, I mean, you, may, you, may, you may not have an unbelieving spouse, but you'll have someone in your family that, that doesn't know Jesus. And these same principles can play out in how we model Jesus for them without words, but with actions. Let them see Jesus. I'll call upon the worship team. And as I come forward to close our service with a song, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Peter and his practical advice. Oh Lord, Peter was blessed with a wife who loved Jesus. The Apostle Paul pointed to their example as a, as a missionary couple who served together. And church history says they went to the cross together. That astounds me. But Father, in the same way, 
In the same way Peter had great compassion for women and men who didn't share their faith with a believing partner. And he wanted them to love them, to show them Jesus in the best way they could, to be a model of Christ as we submit to their care or submit to their needs. Lord, teach us the reality of this even today. We ask it all in Jesus' loving name. Amen.